Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in John chapter 4. We are in the story of the Samaritan woman at the well where Jesus met her in Samaria, in Sychar, in the province of Samaria. I covered the first part of this story in my last audio from verses 1 through 24. The story was too long to put in one audio, so I'm going to continue in this audio and we will finish with Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. So we'll start and we'll cover verses 25 through 42. We'll start with verses 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. I am he, Jesus told her, the one speaking to you. Now let me give you some background here uh, in this discourse between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. You recall he prophesied to her that she had five men slash husbands before and the man she was living with now the man she had now was not her husband and that was probably a re- implicit rebuke of her sexual immorality although it's not 100 percent sure we talked about all about that in the last audio so he had proved to her that he had prophetic powers he then complained about the the samaritans trying to worship on mount gerizim instead of in jerusalem and uh, he said that the Samaritans worship what they did not know in verse 22. And Jesus said, we Jews worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. And so he's given her some instruction about the true religion, if you will. The Samaritans had thrown out all the Old Testament scriptures except for the Pentateuch and for Joshua. And then in verses 23 and 24, Jesus said, an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. In other words, we're not going to worship in Jerusalem. We're not going to worship at Mount Gerizim. We're going to worship in a spiritual temple. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus has given the Samaritan woman the hot gospel by, by the point at which we pick up here. Now, the woman in verse 25 says, I know that Messiah is coming, which is not really what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about her sexual sin. She dodged the question, her probable sexual sin. She dodged the question. Then he started talking about where people are going to worship. And she dodged the question again. And she said, I know the Messiah is coming. Now, the Samaritans had the idea that the Messiah would be a great teacher. So she's saying, look, this is over my head. I don't want to stand this. You and me, we can talk about this all day long, but I don't want to stand The Messiah is coming, and he'll explain it. And, of course, she knew the Messiah is not coming tomorrow. The next day, she could get out of having to discuss this with Jesus, because Jesus was overmatching her, obviously, because he's the Son of God. And she was walking around and darkness and a false religion and then so she realized she was overmatched and so she, she's trying to put him off again well jesus gave her a shocking answer he says oh the messiah is coming and he will explain this well guess what i am he i'm here standing here in front of you i am the one speaking to you i am the messiah now niv study bible and adam clark point out that this is the only occasion before his trial where jesus explicitly said he's the messiah he usually didn't do that he did it when he was confronted at his trial right before his crucifixion but this is at the very beginning of his ministry and he says i am the messiah i am jesus now then i study bible and adam clark asked the question why was jesus so open here at this time about his messiahship he was very hidden about it all during his, his galilean ministry and actually at the with his judean ministry he was hidden about it too until he got right up to the time he was about to be crucified and he started talking openly about it and the answer is, according to the NIV Study Bible and Anna Clark, is because the term, the, the term Messiah did not have political implications in Samaria. It did down in Jerusalem. It, it implied there was going to be a revolt against, Jerusalem, against Rome, and that would be an awful situation, but not so in Samaria. 
And so Jesus was quite open about it. Now, a few details here. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. And then in parentheses, who is called Christ. The woman didn't say who was called Christ. Christ is the Greek Christos. This is John translating the Aramaic Messiah for the Greek Christ so that his Greek readers would understand what the woman was talking about. The woman didn't know Greek and Jesus didn't speak, wasn't speaking Greek at the time. So because Jesus was Jewish. So that's why John threw that in, so that we could understand. We moved to verse 27 in John 4. Just then his disciples arrived, and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? What do you want? That would have been a question they might logically have asked the Samaritan woman. What do you want with our master? Or why are you talking with her? That would be a question they might logically ask Jesus. What are you talking with a woman here in public? It says they were amazed. Why? Here's some options. Jewish religious leaders rarely spoke with women in public. How about Jewish men? Non-leaders. Just the average Jewish man didn't speak to women in public. Now here's John Gill who quotes a rabbi. Quote, Let not a man talk with a woman in the streets, even with his wife. And there is no need to say with another man's wife. Tongues will wag if you talk with another man's wife in the streets and even if it's your own wife i suppose what they're thinking is that somebody might look at that and say and not know that the woman is married to the speaker and say oh that man's out there talking with another woman he's being unfaithful to his wife even though it's his own wife he's talking to typical jewish legalism and so the disciples who of course are steeped in that kind of culture they're shocked that jesus is talking to a woman not only talking to a woman but to a samaritan woman because the jews and the samaritans hated each other as we know Jesus didn't seem too concerned about his reputation being hurt. He was more interested in getting that woman saved. We go to verses 28 through 30. Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the man, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. They, meaning the, the Samaritan men, left the town of Sychar and made their way to him outside of the town where the well was. Now, the woman left her water jar probably because she was so excited about that she might have found the Messiah, or she could have left it for the disciples to draw water just as a matter of courtesy, but I think it's because she was excited and she just forgot it. Ran into the town, told the men, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now, that's just a little bit exaggerated. Jesus, all he did was predicted. He just told about her, her romantic love life, her six boyfriends or her husbands or whatever they were, her six men. Notice she's not... Well, she didn't mention exactly what it was that Jesus had said, but she wasn't ashamed enough about what he had said to to stop her from announcing to the men that she had found some kind of a prophet. And then she said, could this be the Messiah? This probably shows that she doesn't really know that she's the that Jesus was the Messiah, but she knew he was at least a prophet. And maybe, you know, maybe it's not just a prophet, but a special prophet, the Messiah. So with that kind of talk... The men of Sychar left Sychar and made their way to Jesus. They wanted to find out for themselves. Now, the Jews actually believed that the Messiah would be able to tell the secrets of all hearts. And so when the woman said that this man had told the secrets of her heart, this tipped the, the men of Sychar off to the idea that perhaps this is the Messiah. Where did, they, where did the Jews get this idea that the Messiah could predict what's in people's hearts? Isaiah 11, 2-3 says this, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, being the Messiah, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. 
His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. In other words, his knowledge goes beyond his sense experience, beyond his eyes, beyond his ears. He knows things. He has a spirit of knowledge. And from that citation in Isaiah 11, verses 2 through 3, the Jews got the idea that the Messiah would be sort of a mind reader, a prophet who can know people's hearts. And so it was logical that the men of Sychar went headed to Jesus at the well to find out who this man was. We go to verses 30 through 33. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. So while the woman is talking to the men of Sychar, the disciples and Jesus are at the well. They had just gone to buy something to eat. And so they say, come on, Jesus, eat something. But he said, but he, Jesus said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? Now notice, the disciples did the same thing that the Samaritan woman did. When Jesus told the Samaritan woman that he could provide her with living water bubbling up, springing up to eternal life. She thought Jesus was talking about H2O, physical water. When the disciples heard Jesus talk about bread that they didn't know about, or food to eat, bread to eat that they didn't know about, what did the disciples think? They took him literally and thought he was talking about food. When he was talking about, of course, ministering to people in the kingdom of God, what he was talking about, that's what he wanted to do. And so they didn't understand. So this is typical. Jesus would use physical examples as metaphors for spiritual truths, and unfortunately, a lot of times his hearers didn't understand him because they were too spiritually dense. You, you recall this happened one time when Jesus was crossing the Sea of Galilee, going from west to east. I forgot exactly where it was, somewhere in his Galilean ministry, and he told them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and the, and the disciples said, oh, it's because we forgot to bring bread to eat. Well, actually, Jesus was talking about the spiritual leaven of the Pharisees, and the disciples were thinking he was talking about bread, physical bread, where leaven is, leavened bread. So this is a typical thing. Now, why didn't Jesus just eat the food that the disciples brought him? You would think, well, he's hungry. It's the middle of the day. The disciples have gone out to get the food. He's not busy right now. The woman's gone to tell the men. Why? Well, I think that Jesus wanted to give them an object lesson like he always did, but it was also because... According to John Gill, and I think he's right, Jesus knew the Samaritans would soon be flocking to him in great numbers to hear the gospel. She knew that woman had gone off telling everybody about what Jesus had said. And so she would be returning, and all the Samaritan men would be returning, and this was a great evangelism opportunity. He was going to take advantage of it, and that was more important to him. That was the bread that, was the bread that fed him, doing his father's work, spreading the kingdom. That meant more to him than having a full stomach. We go to verses 34 and 35 in John chapter 4. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. This is Jesus' answer. This is My food is not bread to make my stomach full. My food, the more important food, is spiritual food, to do the will of him who sent me. The will of him who sent me, of course, is the God the Father. God the Father sent Jesus. And my food is to finish his work. So working, doing the will of God the Father, which is to work for God, to expand the kingdom, that's what, that's what Jesus' goal in life. That was his vocation. And if Jesus is our example... If he is, is our exemplar, what should we be doing? What should feed us? What should make us satisfied and full? Is doing the work of Christ and seeing people come into the kingdom, being discipled, being taught, so forth. Jesus goes on to make his point. Verse 35, don't you say there are still four months, then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields, for they are ready for harvest. And what he's saying here, he's quoting a proverb, and the proverb it says, look, there's four more months, then come the harvest. In other words, we've got a long time before the harvest comes, so don't get excited about it. Don't be over-anxious to get to the harvest, according to the NIV Study Bible. 
And this is a contrast to Jesus' anxiousness to get to the harvest. So you have to be careful here to interpret this. He's saying, look, on the one hand, that proverb says, take it easy. We've got plenty of time before the harvest. But I'm telling you on the opposite to that, contrary to that, I'm telling you, open your eyes and look at the fields that are ready for harvest. In other words, if you hear that proverb, they're four months before the harvest comes. You look out of the field and you won't see any buds, any, any stalks. You won't see any beginnings of the grain harvest. But if you look at your eyes around there at the people that need the kingdom, they're white. They're ready for harvest. I think the, is the King somewhere else, I mean, maybe the King James says they're white for harvest. I can't remember, but the Home of Christian Study Bible says they're ready for harvest. You can look out there and see it's time to start reaping. And what he's saying is, look around here. These Samaritans need to get saved. Now, this was the will of Jesus, the will of God who sent Jesus to finish work. And that was the food of Jesus. That's what filled him up and made him satisfied. I'm going to give you a lot of scriptures here in John that that describe explicitly that idea that Jesus came to do the will of the Father and to finish his work. I'm going to read them quickly, so you. but I'm going to emphasize the parts that, that make this point, that Jesus came to do the will of the Father and to do his work. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus seeks the Father's will. John 6:38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And of course, him who sent me is God the Father. John 8:26. I have many things to say and to judge about you, but the one who sent me is true. And what I have heard from him, these things I tell the world. The one who sent me. John 9, 4. We must do the works of him who sent me. While it is day, night is coming when no one can work. So there we do the works of the Father who sent Jesus. And notice it's we. Not only does Jesus do the works of him who sent me, but Jesus says we, his apostles, his workers, too. And that would include us, too, as an application point. John 10, verse 37 through 38. If I am not doing my Father's works, don't believe me. But if I am doing them and you don't believe me, believe the works. This way you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. So Jesus not only says he's doing the Father's works, he says you can believe the Father by looking at the works I do because they're the works of the Father. John 12:49 through 50, For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command as to what I should say and what I should speak. I know that his command is eternal life. So the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. I speak just as the Father has told me. He does the will of the Father and he speaks what the Father says. He does and he speaks according to the will of the Father. John 14, verse 31. On the contrary, I am going away so that the world may know that I love the Father. Just as the Father commanded me, so I do. Just as the Father commanded me, so I do. John 15:10. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. So Jesus is saying that, he loves the Father because he keeps the Father's commands. Just like if you love Jesus, you'll keep his commands. So Jesus is doing the Father's commands. John 17, 4, the high priestly prayer. I have glorified you on the earth. Jesus is saying, I've glorified you, God the Father, on the earth. How? By completing the work you gave me to do. So the work, the work, the work was the will of the Father, the Father, the Father. Over and over again, he says this in John, to do the work of the Father, which is to spread the kingdom. Verses 36 through 38, the reaper, the reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life, so the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. 
Now, who are these others who had done the sowing to make things right for the apostles? Well, here's some options, and I've studied Bible mentions. It could be John the Baptist and his supporters. It could be the prophets and other godly men of old. Or it could be both of those, actually. It could actually mean Jesus' work. While they were in town, while the disciples were in town buying food, Jesus was laboring by witnessing to the Samaritan woman. And now the benefits that the apostles would get the benefit by reaping the Samaritans. This is Adam Clark's idea. Well, maybe so. I don't know. The point is, is that typically when you do, when you labor, when you harvest people into the kingdom, somebody has done some previous work. They might have spoken a word to them, given them a book to read. Maybe they were raised in a Christian church or Sunday school. I just talked to somebody Sunday couple days ago that spent 20-something years in a church, a a, a God-fearing biblical church, and was absolutely opposed to the gospel until he finally got saved. I'm sure that the the, the deposit was put in him, and it finally grew fruit. The reapers, of course, are the the reapers ought to receiving pay. That's the apostles are going to get paid. They're going to get those Samaritan converts and whatever other converts they could get. Now, the pay that they're going to get, they're already receiving pay. That could be the joy of gathering the fruit in this life, or it could be laying up rewards in heaven in the next life, or probably both. Now, this idea of getting the benefit for what other people have done a lot of work for, that's actually a common occurrence in everyday life, in your life, in my life, in everybody's life. Here's some scriptures that emphasize that point. Leviticus 26.16 then I will do this to you. I will bring terror on you, wasting disease and fever that will cause your eyes to fail and your life to ebb away. You will sow your seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. And there the sinful Israelites would sow and then the enemies get to reap without having to sow. Micah 6.15, you will sow but not reap. You will press olives but not anoint yourself with oil. And you will tread grapes but not drink the wine. <laughs> You'll do all the work. Somebody else is going to enjoy the, the wine. 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 9, 6 through 9. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now the one planting and the one watering are one in purpose, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. But we are God's co-workers. You're God's field, God's building. And that's a classic verse that's quoted a lot. When you get somebody saved, I remember, it reminds me of a woman in India that we're still... Well, she's in China, but she lives in India. She's from India. And we've been, my wife and I have been keeping up with her for years. And she got saved because she asked me before I knew her real well to go down and pray for her dying father. He was miraculously healed. And, and she's all excited. And so she's kept up with us for a long time. But we didn't actually lead her to the Lord. I told her before, I said, I'll go pray for your father on one condition if you believe Jesus, if Jesus raises him up. And she says, I will. I said, okay, I'll go then. So I went. He was miraculously healed. He was dying. He was in the ICU at a hospital. So I called her up about a week later, and I said, I said, um, I said, you know, your father, how is he? Well, he's doing fine. He's perfectly okay. I said, well, that's a miracle, wasn't it? And I said, now, remember what you told me that if God did a miracle, what you would do? I was getting ready to try to witness to her and try to pray with her to get saved, you know. And I figured this is the perfect time because, by golly, a miracle done. And she made a promise before the miracle was done. So I'm getting ready, you know, to reap, reap the harvest. And she said, oh, no need to pray. Uh, somebody on the Internet last, was a Christian in England on the Internet had led her to the Lord. <laughs> so I did all the work. And by golly, the guy in England who just had a little chat on the Internet, he got the rewards, eh? He got the reap. It doesn't matter. 
doesn't matter at all. She doesn't even know that guy now. She knows us, but she doesn't know the guy. So it doesn't matter. Just do the work. You know, lay seeds, witness to people, give them books, pray for them, do whatever's necessary, and pray that somebody else will come along and get and reap them into the kingdom. Verses 39 through 41 of John chapter 4, continuing. Now, now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. Now, apparently, I guess... People knew what the woman had done. I guess her reputation was notorious, or at least her life situation was well known. And then when she said, hey, he just predicted all that. And, of course, that might have been a little bit embarrassing for her to be talking about that. But she must have. And so people heard. And they said, my goodness, he, he knew that about this woman, a perfect stranger. Verse 40. Therefore, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed with them two days. Many more believed because of what he said. So he continues his witnessing for two days all planted because of that miraculous prophecy that he had given. Now, John Gill says they believed even before they saw Jesus, when they just heard the woman talk about what she had, what Jesus had told her, that they just believed. I don't think so. I, I think Gill's wrong about that. I think they went back to Jesus and talked to him some more at the well. But it does show what a good testimony about Jesus can do. It drives people to hear about the Lord. Now, why did Jesus stay for only two days? John Gill speculates he, Jesus did not want to give reproach to the Jews for staying longer. I mean, you know, staying in a Samaritan's house for more than two days, what's the matter with you? Well, but the problem with that is Jesus didn't care who he caused to stumble about that. He ate with Pharisees all the time. He, he talked with Samaritan women in the middle of the day. I don't think that bothered him. But it is interesting in John 8, verse 48, Jesus was accused of being a Samaritan. The Jews responded to him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Apparently they thought being a Samaritan is synonymous with having a demon. But anyway, Jesus stays for two days, teaches, instructs, and he goes. Now notice this interesting. Jesus had told the disciples not to go to the Samaritans. At least he did later in the Galilean ministry when he sent out the 12 disciples. He said, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel first. Don't go to the Gentiles. Well... How do you explain this? Well, Gill says this was only a temporary restriction because, after all, Philip went to Samaria after Pentecost. Well, true, that explains why it was all right to go to the Samaritans after the Jews got the gospel. But this is before, and my answer to that is, hey, it just came up. He was traveling through Samaria. The opportunity to witness presented itself. He had a general rule of thumb, but... It was a general rule of thumb. It wasn't an absolute rule. After all, when he told the disciples to not go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he ended up in Syrophoenicia, which is definitely the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and he witnessed to the Syrophoenician woman who had great faith. So just remember, we can't make rules of thumb absolute rules. Like the Billy Graham rule, that's a great rule of thumb. It makes a lot of sense, but Jesus broke it, really, when he was talking to the Samaritan woman. Opportunity just presented itself, so he took advantage of it. Now I'm going to go into a little anti-cessationist screed here by reading a quote from Adam Clark who said that miracles were not needed to get the Samaritans saved because in verse 41 it says many more believe because of what he said. And the idea is, is, see, we just preach. We don't need miracles. We just need to preach and that will get people saved. Well, why is that foolish? Because the prophecy was a miracle. And that's why people came to, to Jesus, because a miracle was done. It was a prophecy. It wasn't a healing miracle, but if it had been a healing miracle, the same thing would have happened. They would have gone to Jesus. So the prophecy was a miracle. In cessationist day, they don't believe in prophecy either. So let me read you a nice cessationist quote from Adam Clark. Why are not miracles wrought now? Good question. Same question I asked when I was 18 years old, or excuse me, 16 years old or so, and almost lost my faith. Why are not miracles wrought now? Miracles were only for the establishment of the doctrines of Christianity. 
where they were first preached. We profess to believe these doctrines. In other words, Adam Clark's friends and family and his culture profess to believe these doctrines because they did back in the 1800s. Therefore, to us, miracles would be useless. Oh, really? Useless? Where the doctrine is credited, no miracle is necessary. Let me ask you, do you think the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ is credited today in America? Jesus has laughed at and sneered at in the high schools and the elementary schools and the middle schools and the colleges and the think tanks and in the media and in the political parties. I could go on and on and on. Jesus' doctrine is not credited today. But Adam Clark says, well, well, the doctrine is credited, no miracle is necessary. Well, then the reverse should be true. Now that the doctrine of Jesus is not credited and not believed, should not miracles be necessary? Adam Clark goes on, the Samaritans believed and no miracle was wrought among them for the simple reason it was not necessary. Well, and I just said it was necessary. There was a miracle. There's a prophecy. And I, by golly, it's necessary today in today's uh, world where nobody believes in Jesus hardly anymore. Or maybe I shouldn't say in the world, or at least in the Western culture in Europe and America, where hardly anybody believes in Jesus anymore. I mean, come on. Same reason I'm here talking to you now is because I saw a miracle. I saw my leg grow out in the thin air when I, did, when I had hard trouble philosophically. Believe, I was a nerd and I'd read all this philosophy. Oh, rationalism, there can't be miracles, can't be. I read David Hume, the skeptical philosopher from Scotland. And finally, after about losing my faith, I said, well, it doesn't make sense to me. You didn't do miracles. You did miracles back then, but you don't now. Maybe there weren't miracles done back then. Maybe it's all a myth. And, and Jesus showed me graciously because I prayed for so long. He actually showed me several miracles. And I mean not just providence. I mean flat out, ain't no doubt about it, miracles. And so my faith was saved. And I suggest to you, if you'll look at evangelism all over the world, especially in the world that's outside of the rationalistic American church, like in India and China. I, I can't tell you how many times people got saved in China because of miracles. They're getting saved all over the place because of miracles. Anyway, enough of that screed. We'll go on to John 4, verse 42. And they told the woman, that's the Samaritan men, uh, the, the Samaritan men from Sychar, they told the woman, the Samaritan woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. So Jesus' words were so convincing that they said, now we don't believe in just because of that prophecy Jesus gave, but because of all the great teaching he gave. This phrase, Savior of the world, it's only used twice in the New Testament. Here, and also in 1 John 4.14, again by the same author, the Apostle John. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. Now, does this mean when we say that he is the Savior of the world, that everyone in the world is saved? Of, is saved? Of course not. We are not universalists. Only people who don't care what the Bible says are universalists. It means that all groups of people in the world may receive salvation. Gentiles mainly as opposed to Jews. Mongolians, Australians, Singaporeans, Frenchmen, Germans, Americans, Chinese, Indians, everybody. He's the savior of all groups in the world. It doesn't mean every individual in the world, but it doesn't mean everybody in the world without exception. It means everybody in the world without distinction. Let me read... Uh, John again in John 3:16 for God so loved the world God for God loved the world in this way he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life God loved the world it doesn't mean that everybody in the world got saved it means he loved everybody in the world besides the Jews every group in the world everybody without distinction not everybody without exception otherwise you end up with universalism which is anathema the Samaritans are an example of this by the way Savior of the world. He's not only the Savior of the Jews, he's Savior of the world. He's Savior of the Samaritans. 
Remember, the Holy Spirit fell, started out in Pentecost, and then in Acts 8, Philip goes up there to Samaria, and the Holy Spirit fell up there too. People got saved all over the place. We are finished now with John chapter 4, verse 42, or actually the whole section is John 4, verses 25 through 42, the second half of the story of the Samaritan woman. In our next audio, we will see Jesus moving back up to Cana, back up into Galilee, and he is going to heal a nobleman's son. Hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. Before I sign off, I've just heard another speculation about this passage from my wife, who makes the point that the Samaritan woman did not go to the women in Sychar, and you might think that would be the logical place for her to go, but she went to the men. My speculation on that is, well, she went to the men because they were the leaders of the, of the city, and they would be the ones that had more influence to spread the word better. My wife said she's heard speculation that it could be because the women in town knew of the woman's checkered sexual history and were put off by it and were not friends with her. Well, that's an interesting speculation, but on the other hand, if you have a checkered sexual past, it seems like you'd be more embarrassed to go tell the men about it. So I don't know, just an interesting speculation. I thought I'd run it by you. In our next audio, we'll take up the healing of an invalid at the Pool of Bethesda on a Sabbath. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 